morning, good morning. Hey, how was uh, Thanksgiving? All right, pretty good. Turkey hangover still, as Shua said. Um, do you mind standing with me this morning? We're going to be reading from God's Word, and we just stand to honor the fact that God has spoken to us. So um, we're going to be reading from Matthew 1, 18. It should be on the board. I, I do encourage you, if you have a Bible, um, your app, whatever, I would pull it out, because we're going to be jumping around in this chapter, and you might want to look at that. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. It says, This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her, divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. You can sit. Well, today, as, as Dan was mentioning, marks the first day of Advent in the church calendar. Advent is just the Latin word for coming, and from now leading all the way up to Christmas, we, we celebrate and we anticipate the coming of Christ, kind of like the Old Testament Israelites would. We, we anticipate Christ coming more fully into our homes and into our lives this season. And I am super excited because I get to share what is very much about anticipation, and that is the topic of hope. Now, this topic is, is very near and dear to me because maybe like some of you, I've experienced what it feels like to be hopeless. I've experienced that depression. I've experienced that despair. Yes, even hopelessness. I know what it feels like to be in the bottom of that pit and just you can't, you can't get out. It's debilitating. It's crippling, right? As, like, no show of hands in this room, but I mean... I've really, like, if it weren't for the grace of God, I, I wouldn't be here. I've literally experienced hopelessness. See, research, um, research shows us that hope is one of the most important um, markers for our mental health. It protects us from stress. Uh, research shows that people with higher levels of hope, they have better coping skills and they, and they bounce back from setbacks faster. They're better at problem solving and they have um, lower levels of burnout. They have strong relationships. They, they communicate better and they're just, they're more trusting people. Hope also provides this resilience against things like post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation. And 
Hope gives us those wonderful chemical benefits too in the form of endorphins that just make us more productive and just make life a lot more enjoyable, right? Hope is essential to life. And essentially what hope is, it's the anticipation of some desired outcome, whether that's um, probable, possible, or even unlikely that affects us in the present. So it's this anticipation of a desired outcome that affects us in the present. I like what psychology today says. It's like mental time travel. Hope structures your life in anticipation of the future and influences how you feel in the present. And psychologists recognize that hopeful people are really the product of nature and nurture. Nature being like my, my biological makeup, my, 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 psycho, uh, my psyche, you know, things that I can't change, my, my genetics, but nurture, experiences, um, um, family background, things that have shaped who I am that I really can't change, experiences I've been through, and then things I'm going through now and how I respond and react to them things that I do have some level of control over. And so researchers um, recognize that uh, we have some level of control over feelings of hopefulness. Rick Miller, he's a clinical director uh, uh, at the Center of Advanced Study in the Practice of Hope at Arizona State University. He would go as far as to say hope is a choice. Now, I don't mean to be a contrarian. I'm not a psychologist. Because there, there really is a lot of truth to this. You know, this, this is, um, we, we have a God-given God level of, of control over our emotions, do we not? This is what spiritual formation is about. It's our active participation with the Holy Spirit to practice the way of Jesus in, in such a way that we become like Jesus in every single way, and that includes emotionally. But the problem with hope is a choice is it's very hard to wish and will yourself out of depression and despair, right? Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and be happy and be hopeful. Like, that's very hard to do, right? And secondly, if hope is merely just your subjective emotional state, that we have some level of control over, but there's no objective surety in the universe, then is there really such a thing as hope? See, if there's one thing COVID has taught us, it's that we have taken a lot of things for granted. A lot of things we hoped in we are, are exposing themselves as not being things we can actually hope in, right? Not governments, not presidents. We've seen that extreme, you know, different flop presidents. We've seen, um, wow, health. We take that for granted sometimes. Health, and then vaccinations. We're seeing that, you know, how many boosters are we gonna need to get? Not jobs. We've seen many people lose their jobs, and our whole lifestyle has changed, right? Everything, 
Everything has changed. And it's, it's unfortunate that it's taken an event like this to penetrate our largely insulated Western lifestyle that most of the world does not experience to get us to understand there's a lot of things that we've hoped in and taken for granted that we can't. So at the risk of sounding a little glib, and the saying is true though, we, we're not promised tomorrow, right? I, I hate to be, use the cliche, but like anything could happen. And if that's true, everything we've worked so hard for, everything we've, we've invested all that time and all that energy and all that money and education to get that job or that vocation or that beautiful dream, whatever it is, could come crashing down in a moment. And if there's no, there's nothing um, unshakable or promised that's anchored into eternity, then is there really hope? Psychotherapist Nancy Collier says, we don't have to think about hope in this grand macro sense that all things will work out. Maybe that's what's not possible. But hey, leave room for the unknown. Maybe that's not possible. That does not sound like hope to me at all. Like, I'm so glad I don't have to sell that to the father in North Korea or the, the trafficked woman strung out in the streets of Tel Aviv. Hope is your choice. Well, at least the small little bit you have, you know, control over amidst the sea of uncertainty in which quite likely things won't all work out. But hey, leave room for the unknown. Friends, our psychologists, our sages, and even our religious practitioners can help you feel more hopeful about this life and your few years on this planet, and that is a great thing. But nobody, nobody can truly give you hope except Emmanuel, God with us. Our world's greatest hope is Emmanuel. Now, Emmanuel means God with us in Hebrew, and it comes from a promise God gave to his prophet Isaiah 735 years before Jesus was born. That's Isaiah 714. It'll probably be on the board. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call him Emmanuel. Now, we know, right, that this prophecy is about Jesus, right, ultimately. And we'll get there, but I'm going to crash that party for just a moment, okay? When you look at the context, when you look at that time, um, there's nothing necessarily extraordinary about this prophecy, okay? Follow with me. At face value, it can simply mean that a particular son would be born and he would be a sign to King Ahaz. You can go back and read this chapter, Isaiah 7, 8, and 9. You can go read this. This was you know, given to a, a king named Ahaz. And um, 
this son that would be born would be a sign, hence his name Emmanuel. God is with us, a sign that God would be with them and he would deliver them from uh, the king of Aram and from Israel. And so the fact that there would be a son born is like, there's a future for you. You're, you're, you're not gonna be destroyed. This is my, my promise, I'm with you. That's kind of the sense you get when you read it. And also, um, you know, the fact that she was a virgin doesn't necessarily mean she stayed a virgin. It doesn't, it doesn't say that she, you know, she stayed a virgin. It says the virgin conceived, right? That happens, you know, I'm assuming that can happen quite often. Um, so, it, you know, probably she, she was a virgin and she um, had uh, sex with her husband for the first time and then had a child. Like, it's not necessarily uh, extraordinary right off the bat. And lastly, the promise that God would be with them was nothing new, right? This, the Bible is replete with this promise. I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. But on second glance, this is a cause to be immensely hopeful. The transcendent, eternal, unchanging God has promised to anchor in with us in the present, somehow for our good. And this is our first point. Our hope is the reality that God is with us. He'll never forsake us. And going back in Matthew, if you do have your Bibles in front of you, I encourage you to kind of, we're gonna, we're gonna look at some of these passages. Um, going back in Matthew, the, the first half of the chapter that we didn't read, Matthew really shows us how this promise of God to be with his people was fulfilled in Old Testament history. We see this in this genealogy of Jesus. Okay, it's not exhaustive, it's, it's highly structured, it's crafted to make a theological point, and at the risk of sounding like a Bible nerd, this genealogy is well worth your study. <laughs> yeah, uh, have you ever had anyone tell you that? <laughs> no, but really, this, this is a very fascinating, and you're gonna see parts of that as we go on today. Um, we won't have time to go over all of it, but I, I'm gonna illustrate a few things to make the point, okay? Verse one says this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So keep that in mind. Jesus, the son of David, this is the genealogy of Jesus. Now, track with me. Verse two. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. You notice how he goes out of the way to mention Tamar here? He purposely goes out of his way to mention Tamar, who was Judah's daughter-in-law. Did you guys catch that? That means Zerah and uh, Perez, were sons of Tamar, who was Judah's daughter-in-law. Matthew is purposefully highlighting, purposefully highlighting the fact that Judah slept with his daughter-in-law. The Bible is crazy. There's some crazy stuff in this Bible, in this book. But even crazier is why would you want this specifically remembered in your genealogy? Like, why are you doing this? Let's go to verse five. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Do you remember Rahab? 
See that highlighting again? He doesn't really name the mothers that often unless he's got some point he's trying to make. Rahab was the prostitute who was um, spared when God handed over the city of Jericho to Joshua. All right, this is uh, okay. Let's continue. Verse five, Boaz was the father of Obed whose mother was Ruth. Now Ruth was an amazing woman, but it reminds us that Ruth was a Moabite. And as such, her lineage, and you can read about the interesting origins of the Moabites in Genesis 19, her lineage was even more uh, weird, to say the least. So you can go back and, and look at that. But what is going on? It just gets better and better, doesn't it? And verse five continues. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. Yes, King David! a man after God's own heart. And David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been someone else's wife. Your eyes, why? Is there any more concise way to highlight the fact that David was an adulterer and a murderer? I mean, parchment's expensive back then. We gotta be concise and to the point. Um, Matthew specifically reminds us that Solomon was a son of a woman who's, um, whom David had committed adultery with and then murdered her husband, Uriah. Jesus' family line. Wow. Now I'll spare you the rest of the list of the kings, um, because of their flagrant sin, merited exile for the entire nation, a nation who up until the time this book is actually being penned had faced oppression and occupation. But the point here in all of that is this. God did not forsake his people. Even through all of that. He made a promise to David. He made a promise to Abraham. In you, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. God promised to work in this world for redemption. And this whole genealogy is pointing to that end. Through all of the messiness and all of that sin, the climax of redemption is in Christ. And that means that God is with us, that he's not gonna forsake us, but he's actively working in all the messiness of our lives for redemption and for good. That's starting to sound a little bit like hope to me. What about you? See, contrary to what Nancy Collier says, the Bible says, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. If God is for us, who can be against us? For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither present, nor future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Think for a moment about your history, your story, your nature, 
your disposition, the way you think, uh, your nurture, the experiences you've had that you can't change, and what you're going through presently, the sin you've committed, and the sins that have been committed against you. God's promise, even through this little genealogy, is showing us he's promised to be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. That gives me hope. Now, as we move into our text that we read this morning, we come to the culmination of what it means that God is with us, and that is the incarnation, what we celebrate this Advent season. The culmination of God with us is the incarnation. Now, if you have your Bible in front of you, again, the text says in verse 18, Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but they hadn't come together yet when she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So Joseph and Mary were, in modern terms, engaged. But engagement back then was not like it was today. It was already legally binding engagement back then. And they would wait in this period. So they were already legally married, but they would wait in this period for a year. And then the ceremonial act, the husband would take his wife to his home and they would consummate their marriage in the first act of sex. And it was during this period of engagement, legally, legal engagement, that Mary starts looking prego. Like jo Joseph's in a tough, tough predicament, right? He loves this girl, but apparently she's cheated on him. Not only so, but if he doesn't divorce her, then by default, he's publicly affirming that, that he slept with her before their, their marriage was, was official. And at that time and day, that would be seriously frowned upon. Not quite like today, but it would be seriously frowned upon today and invite a whole host of issues of its own. So do Joseph decides, okay, I'm going to divorce her. She cheated on me. But he didn't want to publicly shame Mary, so he decided to do it quietly. And once he had made up his mind, the angel, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So I got a question real quick. Whose lineage was it that we went over? Whose genealogy was that? Joseph's. Yeah, I heard that. It was Joseph's. Why? Because I mean, Jesus didn't have a biological father, right? Well, why did... Why did he say it was Jesus's? Skip down to verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate the marriage until she gave birth to a son, and then he gave him the name Jesus. Real quick, I just think it's so funny he didn't consummate the marriage until, until the son was born. He's like... Are you sure that was a dream? That, are you sure that was from the angel? Or was that some bad food I ate last night or something, you know? He's like, I'm gonna wait and make sure there's a son that comes out first. Because I don't know if I was hallucinating or what. But <laughs> he takes Mary as his wife, and then he names the child Jesus. 
legally in that time and day, he was, by doing that, by naming that child and taking Mary's, he was adopting Jesus as his own son, rightful heir of his line. There is so much going on here, guys. And, and, and cast this real quick. This is his line that he's just adopted. The wonderful, welcome to the family. Um, cast against this, think back of Isaiah 7, 14. Matthew quotes that again in 22. He says, all of this, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which mean, with means God with us. Now we see Jesus fulfills this prophecy in an ultimate sense. The virgin did give birth to a son in her virginity. And this wasn't just the sign that God was with them. Jesus is God with us. God became man. And he inherited that family line. He was adopted in and was the rightful heir. It says all of this took place, Matthew says. That includes those messy stories of that genealogy. Jesus adopted and was the rightful heir of all of that messiness, all of that broken ancestry. Um, Jesus redeemed it. He culminated it. He fulfilled it. I love what um, a scholar, R.T. France, says. He says, Jesus brings the history of God's people to its climax. And there's an astonishing parallel that's being made here in this adoption of Jesus into Joseph's family line that um, is expressed here. In the incarnation, likewise, Jesus is inheriting our broken stories, our messiness, our fractured lives, and he redeems it. He culminates it. He restores it. The creator, not just any man, the creator of the cosmos, the king of the world. God became man. The infinite became finite, and he vicariously lived in our stead. That's how I'm using that word here. Vicariously, he lived in our place as our substitute, in our stead. He inherited our brokenness, our sin, our shame, our pain, our Frustration he inherited all of that so that through his death and resurrection, he might restore our lives. The culmination of God with us is the incarnation. It's Emmanuel, not just the sign, but the actual person, Jesus. Lastly, the death and resurrection of Jesus demonstrate our hope is secure. See, if, if life is not guaranteed, then what truly is there to hope in? 
Right? History is replete with, with examples of shattered hope. And Matthew is actually playing off one of those in this very first chapter. The last third of this genealogy is structured in such a way that it shows that the hope for um, national and political liberation of Israel, it was never materialized. See, even after they had returned from Babylon up to the very point of this writing, as I said, um, the Israelites were still vassals of other kings. They were oppressed under the Greek and Roman occupation. So you would expect verse 21 to say, she will give birth to a son and you will give him the name Jesus because Jesus will save his people from the Roman Empire. But it doesn't. Because even political and national liberation can't bring lasting hope. We're experiencing that. No, it says, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. See, the biggest threat to hope is sin because sin brings death. And death is entering into, apart from Christ, the, really the unknown. So you remember Remember in the garden, God walked, he was with, God was with humanity in the garden. He walked with them, it says, in the cool of the day. But all that changed after Adam and Eve sinned. Sin brought death into the world according to God's um, forewarning. And humanity, in this, in this wonderful picture, humanity is now kicked out of the garden from the presence of God where the tree of life was. And so in Paul's words, from that point on, creation was subjected to futility. Now, I'm not saying that uh, we shouldn't hope in the good little desires we have in this life, right? We, we should hope in good little desires. Even the, even the biblical authors, they, they say things like, um, I hope to visit you soon. So we, we should definitely hope in those good little things. But what I'm saying is that ultimately they didn't sustain them. They didn't sustain the biblical authors. It can't ultimately sustain because they're not ultimately sure. But in contrast, the Bible mentions a better hope. The only real, sure hope in the universe. Hebrews 6.19 says this. It should be on the board. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary of heaven behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. Get what he's saying here real quick. We have this anchor in the sanctuary of heaven, the very presence of God, because Jesus lived, died as a sacrifice for us, and rose again victorious over death, and now he sits in the very presence of God at the right hand. This anchor is Jesus. He conquered death by dying the death we deserved and rising again. And just as Jesus was adopted by Joseph, so through the incarnation, 
he became the rightful heir of all of our sin and shame, sufferings and pain. But you might say, but I still bear those scars. You know, I, I, still, um, I still struggle because of what happened to me. I'm still haunted by those memories. How did he bear those things? I still physically feel those things and, and I still actually have consequences for actions I've made that I wish I could take back. For a little while, you may, but ultimately, ultimately, As Jesus was adopted and became the rightful heir, so too we by faith, get this, are being adopted as children of God into his family and we inherit the pedigree of Jesus. Glorified, resurrected, eternal, perfect. I don't know of any other hope than that. Apart from it, we're just left in the state of sin and brokenness with no anchor that goes beyond the grave. Only, surely, judgment for our wrongdoings. The death and resurrection of Jesus, though, demonstrate that our hope is secure. As we close here, I wanna share a story. Um, one of my favorite hymns was written by this guy named George Matheson. He was born in 1842. And some say he was on his way to becoming um, the greatest Christian leader in the Church of Scotland in his era. But all of that would change. He was engaged to his fiance at the age of 20 and he began going rapidly blind. The doctors said they couldn't do anything about it. And when he turned to his fiance to share the news, she said, I can't go through my life the wife of a blind man. And she left him. He never married. And his sister had to take care of him, his life. 20 years later, so he's about 40 years now, 20 years later, he penned this famous hymn, I love it, oh love that will not let me go. He penned it in less than five minutes, actually. See, on the eve of his sister's wedding, while remembering, imagine the weight of this, on the eve of now his sister's wedding, the one who took care of him, he is now remembering his own engagement, failed engagement, and now the prospect of having to live the rest of his life without the only one that has been there with him through it all as she gets married off. And in the last two stanzas, he wrote this. Oh joy that seeks me through the pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not in vain. The morn shall tearless be. O cross that's lifting up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust life's glory dead, and from the ground there blossoms red 
life that will endless be. There are many things to hope for in this life. Marriage, beautiful family, bright future, great job, financial security. There's a lot of things, but none, none can compare to the hope we have in Emmanuel. It's no coincidence that Jesus' very last words that he was said before he left this earth and he wants to leave with us today are, lo, I am always with you, even to the end of the age. May we revel in the reality of that this season, guys. We're not left, as Paul says, without hope. He means that objectively. See, unlike human hope, whose props are often weak, its foundations are often weak, and, and, and it's, um, they're often for bad, bad goals, and the expectations are often disappointed, Paul says, hope does not disappoint because we have the love of God that just will not let us go. The love of God being poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who he's given us. We're anchored into the unchanging love of God by the work of Jesus and the tether of the Holy Spirit. And so I just wanna leave you with a benediction. This comes from Romans 15, 13, as we enter um, into our time of worship and, and communion after. May this be true for us this season. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with those feelings of hope by the power of the Holy Spirit.